Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is John Greenberg. He's a senior correspondent with PolitiFact and was part of the PolitiFact team during the 2012 presidential election. He was executive editor at New Hampshire Public Radio and a Washington reporter for NPR. He has twice won awards from the Society of Professional Journalists for investigative reporting. We've been talking about our post-truth era in a way that helps us understand why and how falsehoods, propaganda, and fake news work. This episode is about fact-checking and the value of reporting the truth to the public so we can see how the world actually is. There is a hunger for what we're doing. I would say that one of the benefits is simply that we exist. And by virtue of our website and by virtue of the stories we do and the fact checks we do, we become a gathering point for people who share a fundamental value. Facts do matter. There is an objective reality out there. We can look at it. We can see that it is not a function purely of spin and we can make decisions based on that. Because we do what we do, people who share that value have a place to come to and see that they are not alone. We talk about the resistance to believing facts in the face of political ideology and the importance of speaking truth to power. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. You're a senior correspondent with PolitiFact, which started in 2007 as an election year project of the Tampa Bay Times. What was happening at that time that this project was started? Basically, we were going into a presidential election season when it was an open race on both sides, the Democrats and Republicans. And the fellow who was the Washington bureau chief for the Tampa Bay Times back then, named Bill Adair, had this idea that wouldn't it be nice if we could say whether or not politicians had said something that was true. And being an imaginative guy and working with some imaginative people and competent technicians at the Tampa Bay Times, they put this together. Here we are today. That's so amazing. It sounds, though, as if the project didn't really achieve the end result, which is to have more truth. If anything, I feel like we have less truth today than we did then. What do you say about that? You don't know what it would have been absent uh, fact-checking. Maybe the situation would be worse. That might be unimaginable, but um, I'll simply put it out there as a logical possibility. I think that we are a response to big, strong trends that run through our society and not just our society. There are trends related to uh, polarization. There are trends related to the use of Twitter and Facebook and so forth. We are emerging out of that trend. Doesn't mean that we can fundamentally change the trends. Things are going to happen. We, I believe, serve a really useful purpose. I think that uh, right now in the days of the coronavirus, people are turning to us in great numbers. There is a hunger for what we're doing. I would say that one of the benefits 
is simply that we exist. And by virtue of our website and by virtue of the stories we do and the fact checks we do, we become a gathering point for people who share a fundamental value. Facts do matter. There is an objective reality out there. We can look at it. We can see that it is not a function purely of spin, and we can make decisions based on that. Because we do what we do, people who share that value have a place to come to and see that they are not alone. I have a bunch of questions about the things you just said. One of them is about values. How are fact-checking and values related to democracy? Why are facts important for a thriving democracy? If you're going to make decisions on issues of public policy, they need to be sound decisions. We can all agree that if we are buying a bicycle for our child, it matters that you buy a small bicycle. You can't ignore the fact that a large bicycle is not going to fit a small child. That's an objective reality. Public policy is infinitely more complicated and even more fraught than buying a bicycle for a child. But the concept is the same. You need to make policy based on what is. And the role of journalists in society is to help the public see what is so that when they're looking at what the public policy choices are, they will have some basis for saying this is why a particular policy makes sense. So since we are basically in the middle of a public policy and public health crisis, I wonder if in this age where we have become inured to lies and falsehoods at every corner, that as a population in the United States, we have decided finally, I hope, that we are going to embrace facts more. Well, that would be a very nice outcome to a very dire challenge. There is no arguing with the reality of the coronavirus. Uh, and it has swept a lot of spin away. I can't say that it will change the politics of this country necessarily, but I do think that there is a lesson here for people to learn, and that is there is an objective reality. You can't be putting out rah-rah speech, encouraging words, just because you think somehow that's going to change the outcome. The virus has humbled us all. I am very humble in terms of my relationship to understanding reality. I don't believe that I have all the answers as a journalist. What I believe I have is an appreciation of the limits of my capacity to understand. You have to approach everything with a sense of humility. And if the coronavirus has taught us all to be more humble, that's a good thing. Since you just talked about process, how do you decide what facts to check and how do you do it? What's your process? We're always scouring the landscape. We're looking at Twitter. We're looking at Facebook. We're looking at transcripts. We're listening to broadcasts. And for us, it is fundamental that what we're looking at is a statement of fact. 
not a statement of opinion, not a prediction of what will be in the future, because there's no telling what will be in the future. It's not checkable. So within that framework, a statement of fact relevant to where the public conversation is today, that's where we want to be. And add into that, the more powerful the person who's made the statement, the more likely we are to check it. So we always check presidents a lot. Okay, so how do you do the checking? We go into a fact check, always asking two questions. What evidence would you want to see to say that the statement is accurate? What hard evidence would you need to see to say that it is less than perfectly accurate? And you just consistently ask yourself those questions again and again and again. And what you do is you're looking for independent objective information. So we spend a lot of time with data tables from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Bureau of Economic Analysis and that sort of thing. And we also turn to experts, people who study whatever we're looking at day in, day out, because they're going to know it much better than we will. And I want to point out one thing that we do at the very beginning. We get in touch with the speaker or the office of whoever spoke, and we say, this is what we're checking. Please send us all your supporting information. Mainly, we want to see what it is that they relied on to support the claim. And that gives us a leg up, and it's only fair to them. Plus, when I am in the process of doing more research and I find information that basically says we're headed south on this rating, this is not looking good, I will get back in touch with that office, that press person or whomever, and I'll say, look, this is what I'm finding. Have you got anything else? Can you look at this a different way? So there is a give and take where we're trying to work with people so that we have some agreement on the fundamental facts. And then whatever our conclusion is, that's up for us to make. So what are the most common lies that you've encountered from politicians? Something that's kind of their bread and butter, and what are the things that are most outrageous? Well, of course, we have our our wonderful category for the most outrageous, uh, the pants on fire. (laughs) Okay. And that's always been a little bit of tongue in cheek, but I obviously in these days, it ain't so funny anymore. I would say that as a category, politicians rewrite history. They change what happened before. They change what they said. They change what somebody said about them. It's a classic sort of dodge and a setting up of a straw man. And when we see that happen, we're actually in pretty good shape because you can go back to the record and you can see what was known, what was said, and it's unambiguous. I mean, there'll be videotape and transcripts and you can check the transcripts against the videotape and that sort of thing. So that's a pretty common dodge that people play. In your experience, who has been the most truthful politician? in the United States? We have our wonderful truth-o-meter. It goes from true all the way down to pants on fire. And so we keep uh, scorecards on politicians. 
which allows anybody to go to our website and see for themselves who has a tendency to be more accurate than someone else. I would say that people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have pretty good track records. And that's in the context of us deciding to do a fact check with a particular bias in mind. And our bias is we spend more time trying to correct bad information than to affirm accurate information. And if you think about that, it makes more sense because bad information can do a greater disservice than accurate good information. So even with that, they tended to do pretty well. Barack Obama also did reasonably well, but a quarter of his statements were in the mostly false to pants on fire range, although he didn't do pants on fire that much. And that's kind of typical. Your typical politician is going to be about in the 25 to 40 percent red zone. Obviously, President Trump beats everybody in terms of the number of inaccurate, false, misleading statements, somewhere in the range of around 70, 75%. He simply does not care. It doesn't matter to him. So that's what we've seen in in looking at the landscape. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it uh, affirms what we all know about politicians not always telling us the truth. I have a question sort of about the audience. Now that we are, you know, in this age, what have you discovered works best for the audience to understand what's true and what's not? Because I think a lot of people really believe the falsehoods that they read or hear, and they really don't know any better, and they can't identify that it's a lie. Yeah, this is a huge problem. People don't say, oh, this is true and this is false. They look at a lot of information with a sense of, well, I'm not quite sure what's true and what's not. That's actually pretty bad. I think one of the things that we try to do is keep our language pretty neutral. There are many keywords that can turn off a reader. Somebody who has a preference for a particular politician, a fan of Trump, a fan of Biden. You use a particular word and they read into it a whole bunch of meaning that you might not have intended. So our editing process is really geared towards stripping out adjectives and adverbs, just letting the facts speak for themselves. In terms of presentation, that's important. The other thing that's important is whenever possible, we try to give people a decent, simple graphic. I mean, this is nothing fancy here, but a decent chart can explain a fundamental point much more quickly than two or three paragraphs. Right. You would never say something like, it's a wonderful day. You would say the sky is blue. <laughs> Fair <laughs> right? enough. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, just to you know, illustrate to the audience, in this time where it's very difficult for an everyday person to be up to speed on everything and to know which is true and which is not. Has it become more difficult for you or has it actually become easier to verify one thing or another? 
Well, we're talking about two different things. Can we verify something? Hopefully we can. And uh, the other thing is whether or not people believe it. If there's information out there, if there's hard data, then we can track it down. That's kind of one of the things that we pat ourselves on the back about. So that hasn't particularly changed. What I've noticed, though, is that it is difficult to get people to believe something that goes counter to their political beliefs. So that if liking Trump is part of your political identity, if liking Bernie Sanders is not just part of your political identity, part of your personal identity, it says who you are, it's going to be really difficult for any fact check to sway you one way or the other. You will push really hard to hold on to your beliefs and to somehow put this piece of information in a category where you might not say it is right, you might not say it is wrong, but you put it in a category where you say, it doesn't matter that much. That's part of our times. It's part of the fabric of our society right now. And our approach, quite frankly, is to try and speak to the people who don't so strongly tie their personal identity to a political figure or a political party. Those people are more open to the kind of stuff we produce. Yeah. So that leaves out a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just saying that the people who are, like you said, self-described fans of Trump or Bernie are going to be less interested in the work that you do. So what do you know about your audience? Who are the people who come to your website all the time and check what people are saying? We do know that they tend to be better educated. They'll tend to have a college degree. And with that will come a slightly better income. In some ways, if you think about the public radio audience, it's kind of like that. I'm sure there's a huge amount of overlap. It's also important to remember that some of the most wonderful feedback I've received has come from people who don't fit that sort of simple model. People who I would say, I would not expect you to come across my particular fact check, much less reach out to me about it. And then they do. And you say, all right, let's not put anybody into a box. Let's write for everybody. And we're going to find a lot of people. Tell me a little bit more about this example. Who was that person? This was very cool. I think it was a call I got from San Antonio, Texas. And the guy was a Gulf War veteran and had a Hispanic last name. He had heard a story on Fox News about some indictments involving all sorts of bogus deals involving the Clinton Foundation and a Canadian uranium mining company. So he had heard that and it struck him as a little bit odd. He would have thought, hey, I would have heard this someplace else. So he started Googling and he came across my fact check. And my fact check laid out exactly what had happened with indictments and what had not. And so there was this sort of little slender thread of overlap with the story that Fox News had put out there, but it didn't amount to a hill of beans. And 
this guy actually just took it on himself to call me up and he left a message and I called him back and we talked about it. And I thought, this is a kind of person I really respect because he's approaching the information that's coming at him with a critical eye, taking his own thoughts seriously and following up and doing his own research. And if we can be an aid to someone like that, my job is done. That's a great story. I love it. In broader strokes, what has been the most interesting impact of fact-checking that you've been involved in on the audience where you've really seen a shift or a change? It always kind of makes you puff out your chest when you work on a fact-check and the next day a reporter in a press conference with the president talks about your work and brings it to the president's attention. That's when you feel like, okay, we're meeting the needs of a whole bunch of people. Because when reporters use our work and carry it forward and make it part of the public conversation, then we feel like we've made a contribution. That's definitely really nice. How did you get into this? How did you become a fact checker? I spent over two decades in public radio. And I was working in New Hampshire at the time. And it was 2011. And PolitiFact wanted to do a partnership involving news organizations in New Hampshire. And my news organization was one of them. So I discovered fact-checking and I loved it. I've always been oriented towards solid data. And that's the basis, that's the starting point for fact-checking. I love the style. I love the cheekiness of PolitiFact because I really believe that fact-checking as we know it could only have emerged actually out of a newspaper environment. Newspapers have a tradition of expressing an editorial opinion. And they also are geared towards gathering facts and hard data. What fact-checking does is a kind of information gathering. And then I'm going to give you my considered opinion based on the data as to how accurate or far from accurate this particular claim is. That was a mindset that I had not had experience with before. And I thought, this meets a need. This clicks for me. After that, I just continued to stay involved and eventually ended up working here. So as an everyday citizen, somebody like me, how can we demand truth from our politicians and in our public discourse? How can we actually create an environment that is more truthful? That's an interesting question. I would say the first thing that we all can do is share information that we think has been rigorously vetted. If you think it speaks truth, share it. Humility is important. Let us all be looking at ourselves and expecting high standards of accuracy from ourselves. I have seen people who are super high educated latch on to an easy claim and think that it's true because it fits their picture of the world 
And then you turn around and you say, no, it's not. And usually those people will say, oh, well, I guess I'd better stop saying that. As far as putting pressure on politicians, I think that it's important that when you come across something that has come from a political leader and it is inaccurate, that you let them know, that you contact their office and say, it ain't so. I don't know that you can do much more than that, but it doesn't hurt to do it. Yeah, I like that. Speaking truth to power, literally, when you can. So looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I definitely am, I will say an optimist, but maybe I hope to say that I'm a realist. (laughs) I believe that there are more good people than bad people out there. I believe that there are more people who are able to sift and see and separate the wheat from the chaff. I believe that there are people who care about all sorts of public policy and that they are interested in pulling together their understanding with a sense of humility so that in the long run, better rather than worse decisions are made by our leaders. I believe that those people are in the majority. I always worry that their voices might not be heard, but I think that the voices are there. And probably the most important role for our political leaders right now is to encourage those voices to be heard. If that happens, I think the fundamental building blocks of a decent society and a decent system are there. That's great. Thank you very much. My pleasure. I'm so heartened to hear that PolitiFact gets a lot of traffic online, which means that people are double-checking the things that they hear and see. Still, he, like everyone else so far this season, recognizes that fact-checking alone, presenting someone with facts, is really not going to sway those whose political belief blinds them to those facts. I wonder if we're ever going to return to a place where we all collectively recognize that objective reality exists and that we must make public policy decisions based on that reality. I like how he spoke about humility and about it being our own responsibility to expect a high level of accuracy from ourselves, whether that's taking in the news, analyzing events of the day, or speaking about them. Stand up for truth. It matters. Next week, our guest is Peter Loge. He leads the project on ethics in political communication and is an associate professor in the School of Media and Public Affairs at the George Washington University. He has more than 25 years of experience in politics, including serving in the U.S. House, Senate, and the Obama administration. We have an obligation to a democratic process. We have a system which is imperfect, which is founded on a series of lies, basically. You know, the man who wrote, all men are created equal, own slaves, like it's built on this. But I think that the structure of our system is one that allows us to move towards more inclusion, 
more respect, more human dignity, more human rights, more civil rights. And I think we have an obligation as advocates to that process itself. We talk about our long history of unethical political communication, making American civil religion the moral backbone of our body politic, and finding a way to make truth clickbait. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbul. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.